0: From the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod.
1: Epidemics are no stranger to my friend Ron Klain, nor is presidential politics. We did an Axe Files a while back that you can find online, tracing his journey from Indianapolis to Capitol Hill to the White House, where he served as chief of staff for not one, but two vice presidents. But I sat down with Klain again last week to tap the lessons he learned as the Ebola czar for President Obama during that outbreak in 2004, and to chat about Joe Biden, the man he served as chief of staff in the White House, and the man he serves today as a strategist and debate coach. Here's that conversation. Ron Klain, it's great to be with you in keeping with the times we're not sitting across a table from each other as I normally do. And as we did the last time that we sat down for the Axe Files, but it seemed like a propitious time to speak because of the reason that we're not sitting across a table with each other. And that is, of course, the coronavirus. And your name has come up quite a bit in these discussions. There are a couple of things I want to talk to you about now that you've been involved in and that you're doing One is the fight against the virus, which reflects your Ebola experience. The other is the Biden campaign, in which you are deeply involved. So we're going to do this as a conversation in two parts. But you were called in by President Obama in 2014 when there was an Ebola outbreak in West Africa and real concerns about that virus spreading. Uh, Talk to me about how that came about.
2: Uh, In the fall of 2014, there was an Ebola epidemic raging in West Africa, And uh, the U.S. response to that epidemic in West Africa, along with other nations, uh, the U.K., France, nations around the world, was ramping up to try to help uh, stop that disease. Why? First of all, because of humanitarian reasons. Uh, People were dying in West Africa. But also because if the disease spread in West Africa, it was going to spread around the world and eventually go to Nigeria, which was highly populous, and from there to other countries in Europe. And so we had a real challenge. Uh, The U.S. response was ramping up. President Obama had ordered the first ever deployment of U.S. troops to fight a disease, Operation United Assistance, sending the 101st Airborne to West Africa to fight the disease. But what he really wanted to do was to engage a whole of government response. And he asked me to come in and oversee it and coordinate it. My background uh, had included uh, overseeing uh, implementation of the Recovery Act the first two years of the Obama administration. Yes, you were, sir. And it was a big, complicated project. And that's what this was. The president wanted to make sure we were using every tool of the government effectively. I was not a scientist. I was not a doctor. We had scientists. We had doctors. And that was a that was a deliberate design by the president. His view was he had the best doctors and scientists advising him already. He wanted someone to really get the government moving, to get the agencies moving. And so that's why he brought me in. And I came in in October 2014 and uh, helped catalyze the response we launched. Uh, At that time, the forecast was that a million people were going to die from a bull in West Africa. Ultimately, the death toll was bet down to about 11,000, and that we'd see a number of cases here in the U.S. Ultimately, we'd be able to put in place mechanisms to trace potential people with the disease, isolate them, and make sure it did not spread in the United States.
1: But the key to all that was early intervention.
2: I think that was one key. Look, I think there were three keys to it, Ax. I think one was acting promptly. Two, was putting science at the forefront. So the president made a decision that he would do what the scientists thought would work. And he took political heat for that, David. He got kind of walloped in the midterms for not taking more symbolic action that wouldn't have worked, that would have hurt the thing as opposed to going with scientific advice.
1: Like what were what, what were the actions?
2: So, So specifically, the question was whether or not we should ban anyone from traveling to or from West Africa. There was a big political push for that, to ban that travel. And what the advisors told us was that if you didn't let people come from West Africa, no one would go to West Africa. And if no one went to West Africa, you couldn't fight the disease. We needed to send doctors, nurses, community specialists, all these people. We put 10,000 people on the ground in West Africa to fight this disease. And the point was that if we didn't do that, it would spread... And eventually, we'd be at risk. I mean, this is no different than fighting terrorism. Either you go fight it overseas or you fight it at home, okay? And so, though it was unpopular, the president made the decision to continue to send people to West Africa, which means you were continuing to bring people back from West Africa. That was what the best expert advice was. It wasn't politically popular. And among the people who sharply criticized Barack Obama for this was a real estate developer in New York named Donald Trump, who was brutal and attacking the president for making these decisions.
1: Because there was this sort of nativist reaction to this that if we just kept diseased aliens out of the country that people here wouldn't be exposed. I I remember sitting on a set actually when Tom Frieden from uh, the CDC was on Meet the Press and he said that he felt confident that they could prevent, that you could prevent a major outbreak here in the US. And there was a, a screaming debate in which I was involved in afterwards on set, about whether that was true and whether the government was deceiving us and trying to minimize the threat of this. And, you know, this was probably pre election, so it was at a, a fevered pitch. But you, you mentioned that the president sent, I think, originally 3,000 troops to West Africa to help in this effort. And it raises the question about why the military isn't being used more right now here in the U.S., and particularly as it relates to the capacity to deal with the cases that we now expect we're going to have. Explain, first of all, why, let's go to the root of what the whole idea of uh, social distancing is in terms of trying to cope with this virus and what it means for the public health system.
2: Yeah, so the problem with the coronavirus is it's fairly infectious, different than Ebola Ebola is hard to spread much more lethal if spread but hard to spread the coronavirus spreads relatively easy easier than flu and so one way to stop the spread of the coronavirus is to keep us away from each other it spreads person to person so the fewer people we have contact with the less the virus will spread one person who uh, is out in the world who gives it to another person uh, if we don't socially distance if we don't take measures that one person will have infected 144 people after 30 days it's kind of how this spreads exponentially so minimizing our contacts is very 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 important the problem is we're just starting to do that now (laughs) the people who are showing up in emergency rooms today got this disease two weeks ago and you know it developed incubated in them they got a little bit sick finally they're showing up in hospitals today so the things we're doing now to stay at home, to try to not go to work, all these things will help bend the curve of the disease two or three weeks from now. But what we're dealing with now is all the people who got sick before we were doing that stuff. And that's why we're seeing the hospitals begin to fill up so quickly with patients. The number of patients doubling every three days, hospitals in big cities already starting to get overwhelmed. By early next week, we're gonna to start to see tremendous numbers of cases, hospitals really struggling. That's where the military comes into this. This is a big logistical challenge. What do we need? We need hospital beds put up quickly. We need to make sure that they're a safe distance from one another and all these other kinds of big logistical challenges. We need to perhaps repurpose uh, uh, hotels or close down hospitals or all these different things to you know get ready for this influx of patients. We also need gear, these uh, hospitals' uh, workers, they can't deal with the patients with, uh, without having masks and protective gear and all these things. And we need ventilators and respirators to treat the sickest people. So those are the kinds of logistical things the military can provide pretty quickly. Uh, I mean, it would be better if we had done this a couple of weeks ago, because even quickly now is going to be too late for many people, but certainly uh, fairly quickly compared to other possible options of getting that at this point in time.
1: The president said, you know, he signed this defense production Yeah. Act and the idea was to essentially requisition industry to produce things that are necessary like respirators because we're going to have a critical shortage of those most likely. But he said he was only going to trigger that in the worst case scenario. Isn't the whole idea here to get out in front of the worst case scenario and be prepared for the worst case scenario? If you wait for the worst case scenario, aren't you behind the eight ball?
2: Well, we're already behind the eight ball. So uh, the the chance to get ahead of this was in January and February. Now we're behind it. And the question is, how far behind it are we going to wind up being? And we're not even talking about the worst case scenario. The worst case scenario is truly horrible. Even let's take what's considered the medium case scenario. The medium case scenario says that we're going to have 100,000 patients needing respirators and ventilators by four weeks from now. The total supply of all of them in the country is 65,000, and almost all of them are in use. So it's not like we have all these things just sitting around. Now, as time passes, most of the unused right now are flu patients, and uh, you know that, that does diminish. One reason people talk about flattening the curve and pushing the disease back is because if we're dealing with patients in May, there are fewer flu patients using those resources in May than there are right now. But nonetheless, we, have, we know right now that even in the medium-case scenario, we have a critical shortage of this equipment. And forget about even the future. Today, right now, the CDC has told doctors in the United States of America that they should expect a lack of masks, not protective N95 masks, but basic surgical masks, and they should use bandanas to protect themselves in medical theaters. So we're in the United States telling people to use bandanas already, okay? That is not sanitary. That is not safe. That's where we are now before we even get to the worst-case scenario.
1: The purpose of the legislation was to, to really, you know, I, I, earlier this week I, I I tweeted that in World War II we created this arsenal of, democ- uh, of, our arsenal of freedom to fight the war arsenal of democracy, you know, converted all of industry basically to the needs of uh, wartime. America, we're not there, but certainly the government can be more proactive than it's been in terms of foreseeing what the needs are and planning for it.
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I think we have to go back to kind of one of the original sins here, which was that after we successfully defeated Ebola in West Africa, and i Left my post as Ebola response coordinator, I recommended to President Obama that he create a permanent office in the White House to get ready for the next one of these things because we knew a next one was coming. Mother Nature tells us that it's coming. We don't know when, we don't know where from, but it's coming. And so President Obama set up a White House office on global health security to prepare for and to prevent and to respond to the next threat like that. And he did that. And President Trump kept that office the first year and a half of his presidency had put a, a veteran of the Bush administration, Admiral Tim Zimmer, in charge of that office.
1: Who was a public health uh, expert.
2: Public health expert, a real expert on fighting uh, malaria and AIDS in Africa. And when John Bolton became National Security Advisor, he removed Admiral Zimmer. He disbanded the office, and he folded some of its staff into an office that does something very different, which is protecting from bio-threats, looking out for terrorists bringing bioweapons to the United States. That's an important threat, but it's a completely different threat than what we're talking about. So he disbanded this office uh, and as a result there was no one at the White House looking out for this threat, getting us ready for the threat, and then reacting rapidly to this threat, particularly on top of the testing problem and this hospital capacity problem. Those are the two things we could have done something about that would have been really meaningful in January and February when we knew this was coming and we simply weren't doing the things we needed to do to prepare for it. And Donald Trump was telling us it would be very small, it would go away like a miracle, not to worry about it. Uh, that's a real problem for where we are right now.
1: Yeah, it is because he has tremendous influence with his base of supporters, and as does Fox News, and they were on board for the same message, which was that this was a political contrivance, this was meant to try and disrupt his election, this wasn't real. Rush Limbaugh said, no worse than a common cold and people believe it. And you just, as as late as today, there was a poll in which uh, Republicans were far less likely to accept that this was real. They were far more willing to buy into the notion that this was being hyped for political reasons rather than a real public health emergency. Now, the president's shifted in the last couple of days from, we've got this under control and not to worry, to this is war, it's very serious, and so on. But those intervening weeks are the difference between containment and what we have now, which is to try and manage the growth of this thing.
2: Yeah, and I'd say one other thing. Not only did his base listen, not only did Fox News listen, but inevitably the bureaucracy listens. So as you know, David, from having worked at the White House, even when the President of the United States sends a clear and strong message to the bureaucracy that I want this done and I want it done now, it's hard to get it to move. When the president's sending a message to the bureaucracy, I don't want this done, and I don't want it done now. And in particular here, this isn't a problem. No one should worry about it. No one should raise it. That actually uh, obviously slows everything down. I mean, it's not just that it affected his followers and his supporters, but the people who needed to act were being told not to act. Don't raise this. Not a big deal. And the first senior public health official who went public with a real red flag, Dr. Nancy Messonnier, one of the deputy directors of the Centers for Disease Control, someone I worked with back in Boston, who's been there for 30 years. She went public and said, hey, this is a real crisis for us. That day after she did that, Trump sidelined her. She was not allowed to appear at meetings of the uh, coronavirus task force anymore. She was persona non grata. And that also sends a signal to people. It tells them, if you raise a red flag, your career is going to be hurt. And that's not the way to get the CDC and all the agencies to act quickly in dealing with something like this.
1: Do you think that the absence of initiative on testing was the function of ignorance, lack of attention? Or was it, as some have suggested, was it a function of not wanting bad news out there? Because the more testing you do, the more you find, you find yeah. I mean, that's a pretty insidious thing, if,
2: if true. Yeah, so I'm not prepared to say that Donald Trump had an intentional strategy of suppressing uh, the numbers. What I am prepared to say, though, is that he conveyed to the bureaucracy signals that wound up having that effect. When he tells people, hey, if you raise this as a problem, you're going to get sidelined. When he doesn't put someone in charge of the White House who's designed to accelerate the production of these tests, when he doesn't take actions to get in front of it, that has the effect of slowing everything down. And whether that was nonfeasance or malfeasance doesn't really matter much. It was a failure of presidential leadership that was intentional. What was certainly intentional was he didn't want to hear about it. He didn't want people to talk about it. He didn't want people to know about it. And that attitude, uh, however pernicious or simply misguided it was, Uh, played a significant role in producing the outcome we're seeing today.
1: Explain what it's like to be in the White House in the midst of one of these crises. And when you were given that responsibility, tell me what it's like when you have a crisis like this. I mean, obviously, the one we have now eclipses Ebola, but still there was a sense of urgency and, and, and human lives at stake, and it was embroiled in politics as happens. What was your life like during that period?
2: well you know up very early uh, up very late and uh, very full very stressful days and indeed my very third day on the job dr craig spencer who had been fighting Ebola in West Africa came back to new york and was diagnosed with Ebola and so we had our first case of Ebola in the nation's largest city
1: and he had been on the he had been on public transit he had been bowling
2: yeah he had famously been on the subway been in an uber been bowling eating a meatball sandwich all these things that kind of became popular culture around it And, you know, we had a thesis that if we intervened with people early, uh, before their temperature was significantly high, they were not infectious from Ebola. Um, That's what the experts told us. But obviously, there was a lot of fear in New York. uh, And um, it was very important. So what was it like? First of all, you had to have a president who was rational and calm, who made rational decisions about what to do. And we had that in Barack Obama. We don't have that in Donald Trump. That made a big difference. Uh, A president who gave clear direction about what to be done based on the science and the facts. Again, not the case with Donald Trump. Uh, And so, uh, you know, my life was crazy and busy and very, very stressful as we dealt with these problems, particularly with Dr. Spencer. At Bellevue Hospital in New York, we had to do a lot of work on making sure that we were getting them the expertise from the Centers for Disease Control to understand how to treat a case of Ebola at a hospital at that time that was did not have substantial preparation for it, as Bellevue did not, um, to help support the staff there to deal with issues like, should the nurses treating Dr. Spencer be able to ride on the subway to and from work themselves? Or were they at risk of getting the disease and spreading the disease and All these complex decisions that had to be made in real time. Uh, Many decisions were made by really incredibly talented members of my team.
1: You had the National Security Advisor, Susan Rice, Lisa Monaco, the Homeland Security Advisor. So you had a group of leaders there working together on this.
2: Yes, and of course, we had a full cabinet of competent people. Uh, One of the key factors here is how you deal with people coming into the country Uh, We saw these horrible lines at airports last weekend of people who might have the disease standing on top of each other, potentially giving the disease to other people. We have no Secretary of Homeland Security right now. Uh, We had uh, Jay Johnson running Homeland Security, very talented person, worked with the Customs and Border Patrol to, to help set up the system we had that very orderly screened people coming from West Africa and made sure that they weren't sick or we could find them and all these things, right? That just takes a lot of skill. It's... It's, it's a thousand tasks every day that need to be done well. And it's, it's why you need competent people in government up and down the line, the career people, the political people, ultimately the president, because, uh, you know, these decisions have to get made in real time and they have to have stil- skilled people to implement them. And between Secretary Johnson, Secretary Kerry at the State Department, uh, Sylvia Burwell, Raj Shah at USAID, uh, you know, we just had really, really talented people uh, at the key places to help make all these things happen.
1: You mentioned that you were chief of staff for uh, Vice President Biden, and you were assigned the task of, he was assigned the task and you by extension of running the Recovery Act. We have overlapping crises here. One is this health crisis, but the social distancing required and some of the measures that are required to try and subdue this health care threat also is creating a global economic crisis that looks now to be as deep or deeper than the one that we dealt with. I'm interested in your view of how that, having run the Recovery Act and having been part of the economic team at that time, how they're dealing with it. I also, you know, we're just remembering our last conversation. I remember you talking about the economic dislocation of the early 70s and that your dad ran a plumbing supply business in Indianapolis and he lost it. Your mom, by the way, also was a travel agent. So there's a whole industry that's being wiped out right now as a result of what's going on. So before I get into sort of the macroeconomics of it, I'm interested in the microeconomics of it and what this means to all the families who are being
2: dislocated out there. Yeah, I do think, David, as bad as 2008 and 2009 were, this is going to be worse. Um, why? Because even at the depths of the Great Recession, when our banking system was broken, when our car dealers were shutting down, when auto industry was at great risk without strong intervention by the president, uh, you know, people were still going out to eat. They were still buying sandwiches. They were still... Uh, going to bars, you know, there's just a baseline level of economic activity that continued, albeit reduced, but continued. What you're going to see here is ba- virtually all economic activity other than shopping online stopping. And uh, and that's going to affect not just these big entities like the airlines we're hearing about and the cruise lines we're hearing about and hotels, but a lot of small stores, the, the mom and pop operations, kind of like my dad's plumbing supply house and my mom's travel agency, that employ a lot of people in this country in small numbers individually, but collectively, uh, probably half the people in the country work for those kind of outfits. And they can't go without zero revenue for 30 days, 60 days, literally no business at all, not just reduced business, but zero in terms of restaurants and shops and stores and all these things. And that's going to wipe a bunch of these people out. And that's going to, I mean, it's going to, Change America for good in some respects. Some third-generation restaurant is going to close down and never reopen. And a bunch of stores like that and stores and malls that are owned by people just trying to do something to make their lives better. The mall's going to close. The store's going to close. Will it reopen? I don't know. And so I think this is not just going to have really devastating short-term effects. But I think we're going to see the echoes of this for a long time to come and a lot of changes in our economy.
1: Yeah, we still feel the impacts in some places of the last economic crisis. There are people and there are some communities that never recovered from the changes that that crisis brought about. The difference here also is that the government is applying remedial measures here as best they can, but whether the scope of them will be enough to offset, that is, is unclear. And we don't really know when this crisis is going to end until there's a vaccine, the prospect of this virus coming back. president, by the way, announced, and I think you're going to see the president, he, having not taken center stage for a long time, he now, I think, understands that he needs to be there. He announced that they were going to hasten clinical trials um, and I was wondering how you responded to that because it was interesting. The head of the FDA, the president was very buoyant about cutting through red tape and getting these potential treatments out. He said they could be cures. The FDA chief was quick to say, slow down on this because there's a lot of work to be done here. Let's not give false hope. Are there dangers in accelerating these treatments? on the orders of the non-scientists and, are, and is, are there safeguards enough to make sure that that doesn't happen?
2: Well, you know, uh, David, a couple things. I mean, first of all, in the era of Trump, one can never be sure that uh, those safeguards will uh, adhere. We, you know, I, I would have said with any other president that in the end the FDA will keep us safe. In the end, the CDC will keep us safe, but we've seen this president rip through every standard and rule and safeguard And so there's no reason to think uh, he might not do the same here. But I think more likely, it's just another false promise from our president. I mean, I I think, uh, uh, you know, three weeks ago, he said there'd be a million people tested by the end of that week. And then two weeks ago, he said there'd be 1.4 million people tested by the end of that week. And then last week, he said there'd be millions tested by the end of this week. Uh, And still we're in the hundreds of thousands, not even back to the million we were promised weeks ago. He stands up every day and he makes promises about this that aren't delivered. He uh, Last week, announced that Google had built a website that was going to get people tested, and that just was completely untrue. I mean, he just goes out there every day, and he made a big deal of the fact that he was sending the hospital ship Comfort to New York to deal with the crush of hospital patients that will show up this weekend in New York. Well, the hospital ship Comfort's on the other side of the planet. It's going to take three weeks to get to New York. So, I mean, there's just a lot of puffery and lying, and I think on vaccines already the president uh, over the past couple weeks has several times said we'll have a vaccine fast and we've had the extraordinary unprecedented spectacle of tony fauci in the presence of the president contradicting the president and saying hey that's not true it's going to take 12 to 18 months uh and it's happened again and again so i think when you see the president saying cures will be here fast uh i think you have to discount that quite a bit now why Part of it is you've got to find the cures. What they're talking about is taking drugs that treat malaria and treat other uh, and some viral illnesses as well and repurposing those drugs to fight this disease based on anecdotal evidence, particularly from Japan, that these drugs may be effective. Well, they may be effective, but they may not be effective. We're going to have to figure out if they are or if they aren't, how much effect they have. That's going to require testing. And uh, that testing takes time. Why does it take time? Because it takes time for people to get sick and people to get better. And this isn't like a test where you put it in a test tube and two minutes later, voila, we have a result. This is a test where you put it in people and you see what happens over the course of treatment. And so that takes some time. For a vaccine, it takes even longer because first you have to test. We're already started with tests on whether or not this proposed vaccine, first of all, safe, where well, you can make people sicker by giving it to them. And then once you clear that hurdle, does it actually protect people from the disease? Maybe it's safe, but it doesn't really stop the disease. That takes some time to prove that out in human beings. And then you have to make the vaccine. That's a complicated and time-consuming thing. So I think that for the foreseeable future, what we're really stuck with is trying to stop the spread of the disease by social mitigation by trying to, you know, do the social distancing, all those things, by washing our hands, by cleaning surfaces, that's our best effort. Hopefully, we'll get some medical treatments to deal with the sick people sooner, and then after that, eventually a vaccine. But uh, that's all going to take time, uh, and uh, and there's just really no way around that.
1: You're in business. you're in the investment business. Tell me what you think about the outlines of what the president has proposed. Some safety net programs have already been passed. Now he's talking about a stimulus of about a trillion dollars, checks to people in April, and and then a second check coming later, if they can get those out. But in your view, what would the most efficacious stimulus and package be right now?
2: Well, so look, I think... Some of the things the president's been talking about make sense. There are also things Democrats have been talking about, like direct relief to people, these, uh, these immediate checks. Uh, loans to small business to help them make payroll. I think it's also a great idea, because I think small businesses really need the help to help them make payroll. That'll help the businesses and also help people get paid. So that's a good idea. I think on this on these industry-specific things, the aid to airlines, the aid to cruise ships, you know, I think the American public is right to say, if you're going to do that, we should get something out of the bargain. Uh, the airlines got a big chunk of cash from the Trump tax cut. They used that to make their shareholders wealthy. Now they say they have no cash. So the government should perhaps get equity in those companies as part of this uh, to make up for that or they should get protections for us as consumers in the airline industry, or certainly restrictions on the payment of bonuses and other things, stock buybacks. So I think we need safeguards around the money that's going to industries to make sure the taxpayers aren't getting ripped off. But I also think we need to think about the fact that this is unlikely to be a short-term thing only, and that we need to take some measures to help produce uh, more long-run impacts on the economy. Uh, Senator Schumer, I know, has been looking at things like student loan relief. I know he's looking at fixes to the unemployment insurance program and help for our senior citizens and a number of other measures. So I, I, it's not so much that I disagree with what Trump put forward. I think there needs to be safeguards on some parts of it to make sure taxpayers are being treated fairly. And we need to think about other things that are really going to uh, you know, go the distance here and not just get us through the immediate short-term problems. Let me
1: uh, propose something that you you may take issue with. But it strikes me that back in 2009, when President Obama was looking for support for a stimulus, there was almost universal resistance from the Republicans in Congress. Three of them crossed the line in the Senate to vote for the Recovery Act that you ended up $887 billion that you ended up administering. It strikes me that in one way, Trump being there may really be beneficial in that he has sway with the Republicans in Congress and may get them, and we've seen some example of that already in the paid leave vote that was taken and so on, to get them to do things that they ordinarily wouldn't support. The idea of what will amount to more than $2 trillion in stimulus and other programs around the economy here would have been unthinkable. I think I remember back then, we all thought we could use a larger stimulus than the one we got. But we could not persuade the few Republicans who crossed the line and, frankly, some Democrats to go over, you know, a trillion. They insisted it had to be under a certain number. When the larger the number, the better the the effect at that time. Isn't that true? I mean, wouldn't we be in a bind if they had taken that position now?
2: Yeah, look, I mean, I, uh, you and I, I think, both have spent eight years uh, debating people on the left in our party about, Obama stimulus and this critique that it was too small. And, uh, you know, look, I start with the fact that we asked for a bigger one and uh, we got exactly the 60 votes we needed. The last two votes, Senator Spector, Susan Collins, uh, they were hard votes to get and they asked that we cut things back. In fact, ironically, one of the things we had to cut back was a billion dollars for pandemic prevention and global health security that uh, Susan Collins uh, was on her list of things to cut when we uh, cut that bill. And she may may regret that this fall but look uh you know i think we we did the best we could i'll say one other thing which was that um i think it's less important to get a big number right the first time than have the ability to go back to the well and get additional stimulus as things proceed so the problem wasn't even so much that the 800 billion dollars we got on day one was too small it's that when we got it's when we got to the fall and we realized it was too small. It was clear that things weren't getting better as hope quickly as we'd hoped. When we went back to Congress and said, give us more. We couldn't get more. And so here, I worry less about whether well, not this bill they pass in the next two weeks is a trillion dollars or more than that. It's more that as we see this unfold, will Congress have the appetite for additional measures that meet the challenge, in part because we don't even really know as you said, how long this is going to last? What the full ramifications are going to be? Today, we're worried about the airline industry. It may turn out that transportation and trucking collapses. Obviously, hospitals need help. I mean, the, the 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 big bang just went off. We haven't fully felt it yet, and so I think it's good if Congress acts quickly. But more importantly, that it be open to acting a second or a third time as developments warrant it.
1: Yeah, I, I take your point. It's essential that they act quickly because you got a lot of desperate people out there. Who suddenly are unable to make a living or who have children home and if they have a job have to deal with that reality now and how to take care of those kids. So there's a lot to address in the short term as well as the long term. You know, thinking back to that time when we were trying to restart the economy and where interest rates were then, which were actually higher than they are now, the fact that there was no major infrastructure program at that time was one of the great I think, regrets of the Obama administration, and that was because of resistance to spending. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of The Axe Files. Let me switch gears on you here and ask you to put on your Biden hat. You prepped him for his 11 debates I think that's probably the only debates we're going to see in this primary, waiting on Senator Sanders to make a decision. But even if he were to move forward, it's hard to see another debate. But you're enmeshed and involved in that. You have a long relationship with him. Talk, first of all, about how one campaigns in an environment like this where you can interact with people, uh, where, frankly, news coverage is really focused on the crisis itself, as it properly should be, how you run for president in an environment like this?
2: Well, we're going to find out. I mean, I think this is a challenge that even those of us who've been around campaigns for a long time have never, ever seen anything like this. And I'll say it's a real challenge for Joe Biden, because as you know, David, uh, compared to almost anyone else we know, there's no one who loves to get out there and interact with people and shake hands and Really, you know, kind of uh, talk to people directly and personally as much as Joe Biden does. Bad idea right now. Yeah, can't do it right now. Hasn't done it for a couple of weeks, and so. Uh, but obviously, it's it's taking away the principal tool in his toolkit, which is that kind of personal one-on-one interaction that he's so great at. Uh, going into coffee shops, going into restaurants, uh, seeing voters. So we're all having to learn new ways of doing that. We're doing uh, telephone town halls. We're doing video town halls. Uh, but I think there's no question that it's put a big crimp in that. Uh, we're also at a time of great enthusiasm for the Biden campaign. He's consolidating support in the party. And obviously, we, we, we can't send organizers door to door to identify voters. We can't do a lot of the basic things you'd want to be doing uh, in the months of March and April to get ready for the fall. All this kind of field organizing and, and, and voter contact uh, that you you can't do so we're going to rely more on telephone we're going to rely more on digital we're going to rely more on getting people by text and email uh, we have built substantial uh, tools around that and resources around that they're that both technological and personal but obviously this is a big big shadow over the campaign there's no question about it
1: the other element is you as i said earlier it's hard to make news in a sense, campaign coverage is going to take a very, very back seat at least for the next several months, and so people will be interested in what Joe Biden has to say, but it's not going to be page one, two, three, four, whatever the digital corollary is.
2: And, and you know, we we saw that powerfully this past Tuesday when Joe Biden won Florida and Illinois and Arizona won every single county in the state of Florida. The kind of win that would have really been front page news and really would have dominated the discussion that night. And frankly, most of the coverage on cable that night was about coronavirus. Even even the night of the election, most of the coverage was about the virus.
1: And his remarks
2: uh, were a lot about the virus. In, yes. Yeah. Well, obviously, it, wasn't. it should have been a time where he stood up there and celebrated and talked about his agenda for the future so on and so forth and instead obviously it was kind of a somber talk about as it should have been as it should have been as it should have been of course you have to meet the moment and the moment is the moment and uh that's what it is but i think um you know i think that uh i do i do think i do think he has met the moment i think his uh, speech laying out his proposal to deal with the virus last week was very very effective very powerful uh, he's put together a very solid plan i think his remarks tuesday night were very good but there is no question that that uh In the middle of a crisis like this, the focus is principally on what the government's doing to fight it, not on the people campaigning. And we're just going to have to adjust to that.
1: I think it's fair to say you're an aggressive strategist when it comes to these things. How do you approach that now and in terms of critiquing the president, if you're Joe Biden. And, you know, I, I've had this discussion with some Democratic strategists. As I saw him. a
2: rare Axe-Pluff disagreement on Twitter the other day.
1: Yes, yes. Well, I have great reverence for David Pluff. I, but I just do, I wonder at this time how much appetite people have for that. You know, honestly, I've been critical of the president. I mean, he, at a drop of a hat, devolves into sort of little political skirmishes in the midst of this. I just wonder what people's appetite is for that, when they're worried about their livelihood, when they're worried about their health, when there's so much uncertainty and anxiety. I wonder if there's not an instinct to say, hey, give it a rest for a while here and let's focus on the main issue.
2: So look, I think that's a fair point, but what I would say is two things about that. First of all, I've been very, very critical of the president, uh, but I've also made two points about that. The first is, this isn't a partisan issue. I've been quite liberal in my praise, of Governor DeWine in Ohio, of Governor Hogan in Maryland, of Governor Baker in Massachusetts. There are Republicans who are doing a great job of dealing with this. It's just Donald Trump is not one of them. So this isn't a a Democrats versus Republicans issue. Democratic and Republican governors are working on this very hard and doing a great job. And I think it's important to remind people of that. This isn't partisan. And then I'd say on the criticism of Trump himself, the point isn't to criticize Trump just as some kind of recrimination or comeuppance. The problem is the things he's doing now aren't fixing it. People are going to be worse off because of things he's doing today. I'm not talking about even the mistakes he made in January or February. But what I'm saying is we still haven't fixed it. There's a story out today that there are actually two White House task forces, one led by Jared Kushner, one led by Mike Pence. Government officials say, I don't know which one I'm supposed to take orders from. When, when, and This is a real problem with testing. This is a really good concrete example. Public health labs throughout the country cannot get testing supplies. They are behind on testing. Why? Because someone at the White House, presumably the Kushner Task Force, has said all the supplies should go to private sector testing, to the big labs. And so in the meantime, the Uh, official task force the pence task force is working with the governors to get their labs up and so you literally have one arm of the white house and another arm of the white house sending different directions on what the testing priorities are and so that's this isn't about a mistake trump made in january this is a problem we have right now and i think there's nothing wrong with uh making the point that like we need to act now trump needs to change what he's doing now that's not about politics. That's about saving lives. That's about getting this sorted out. Tonally,
1: uh, if you're Biden, how do you approach that?
2: You know, he's, he has tried to uh, – uh, he, he has certainly made criticisms of the president. But I think if you look at what he said about the virus, uh, that's been the smaller part of his remarks. The larger part of his remarks has been emphasizing his views on what needs to happen. In fact, the major speech he gave on this um, a week ago – On the 12th of March, Uh, he basically began by saying, look, um, uh, here's what I would do. And I hope Trump does everything I'm suggesting. You know, like I'm laying this all out there and I hope Trump takes all of it. And I know he really believes that. I know he really believes that, uh, uh, you know, that even if it helped Trump politically, if Trump would do the right thing, we'd be better off as a country and he'd be much happier as a person if he felt like people were being safe and protected. So he's going to just speak the truth about what needs to happen. Uh, I think voters can judge for themselves about which one of these two men they would rather have leading the country during this crisis and which one of the two they want leading the country with what comes after the crisis.
1: Doesn't a lot have to do with just how things that are beyond anyone's control, the nature of how this thing spreads? Obviously, it's, it's within all of our control if we do the things that we're asked to do to try and subdue the spread to some degree. But we don't know whether this virus will reconstitute itself in the fall as these kinds of viruses often do after uh, ebbing in the summer. We don't know exactly how the economy is going to act. What we do know is that every day Donald Trump will be standing on that podium now and delivering news to the country and he'll get covered for hours at a time and Biden will not. And it may be that being on that podium makes you If you claim responsibility or if you claim by being there that you're the person in charge, people will take you seriously and hold you accountable for what happens. And if it's bad, you will pay a price for it. It's also, you know, you get to play the hero's role, handing out helpful grants and giving positive news and so on. That is sort of beyond your control. And that will influence what happens in November.
2: It might. I mean, look, I, I, I want Joe Biden to win really badly, but I want Donald Trump to do better things and save more lives. And if he gains politically by doing that, I'll be the first one to cheer. If he makes the right decisions, stops having this chaos in the White House, sorts things out, puts science first, stops bickering with the governor, starts getting things done. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll applaud as loudly as the next person. Will that help him politically? I mean, it might. I will also say that, uh, you know, George H.W. Bush won a big war in Iraq and lost in 1992. Winston Churchill beat the Nazis and lost in the last election. As you have taught me many times, David Axelrod, elections are about the future. They're not rewards for past performance. And so if the president does a good job, which he hasn't been doing, and he beats this disease, which he's not doing, and he gets credit for that, then... uh, Still, in November, the choice for the voters will be, who do you want to lead this country for the next four years and deal with the challenges of the next four years? And I feel good about that choice, too. So uh, we're not here rooting for Trump to fail. We're, we're rooting for Trump to succeed, and we'll have the election either way.
1: Will we have the election? I mean, and that's one of the questions is uh, yeah, is how are we going to approach an election if this drags on into the fall And should we go to an all-mail-in election? And I'm sure these discussions are going to start right
2: now. Yeah. I certainly think every voter in America should be able to vote by mail. We have that in almost half the states and uh, covering more than half of the American public. We saw that in Florida this past time. I mean, even with the election occurring in the middle of an epidemic, even with a lot of people deterred from going to the polls in person, more people voted in Florida in 2020 than voted in 2016 because of the availability of mail-in ballots. And so everyone in America should have that choice. We don't know what we're going to be facing in November. We do know we're going to have an election on election day. It's set by statute. That's not going to change. Trump can't change it. He can't wave a wand and make it go away. That election will happen on the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. And so the question is, will we uh, allow complete participation in it? Nationwide vote by mail uh, with prepaid postage is the fairest way to let everyone who wants to participate, participate.
1: You've known Joe Biden longer than most. You worked with him on the uh, Judiciary Committee as chief counsel of the Judiciary Committee, going way back to the 1990s. Uh, you were his chief of staff. Tell me how you feel he's changed over time. And speak frankly about, you know, the, you, you say elections are about the future. One of the questions about Biden has been in these primary campaigns is, does he represent the future? You know, he's 77 years old, and there have been concerns expressed about that. Tell me about the essential Joe Biden and the circa 2020 edition.
2: So look, I think he brings, as you you know, politics is about the person and the moment. And I think that at a time when we have a president who is mean and vile and hating and divisive, someone who is decent and caring and compassionate is the perfect antidote for that. And I think that someone who also is going to, uh, you know, put expertise and professionalism, who respects government, uh, brings the kind of skills we really want, experience to this. I mean, I do think this crisis is uh, reminding people what they like about Joe Biden. Um, uh, Every time he talks about this, he begins by talking about, uh, his compassion for the people who are suffering from it. I haven't heard those words out of the president's mouth once, any kind of compassion for the for the victims of it. Uh, he talks about his experience in dealing with problems like this, and we're seeing the consequences of the president's inexperience and hatred for government and divisiveness. So I think the choice is very clear. Now, in terms of ideas for the future, look, we're, we've been in a primary with uh, people who have some very, very far-reaching ideas, Vice President Biden is running on what will be the most progressive platform of any Democratic nominee for president in history. More progressive than even the one that Clinton ran on in 2016 and Obama ran on in 2008. Now, is it as far out there as uh, Senator Sanders or Senator Warren? No, it's not. But it's, but it's pretty, far, pretty far forward leaning in terms of progress on health care, on education, student loans, uh, on climate change. Uh, you know, Vice President Biden's running on a nearly $2 trillion climate change plan that dwarfs anything any Democratic nominee for president's ever proposed. So I think there's a lot, lot to talk about their acts as we get to the fall and we offer this choice with Trump.
1: Let me ask you about the last debate here with Sanders and how you land this plane. And that debate was more uh, acrimonious than I anticipated. And some of it, frankly, was the VP's pugnaciousness He was virtually assured the nomination when he stepped on that stage. And yes, Sanders poked him a little bit, though not by Bernie's standards, particularly so. Why not rise above that and really speak to those supporters of Sanders who feel a a sense of urgency about climate and about social justice, inequality and health care, for that matter, and feel they want to hear that same sense of urgency from Biden?
2: Yeah, so look, I think that in the debate on Sunday, uh, Vice President Biden did make a number of grace notes towards Senator Sanders, talked about a lot of his ideas, talked about um, their their sharing of common values. And so he did. And again, on Tuesday night, when he won this sweeping victory, he began with an explicit appeal to uh, praise for Senator Sanders' leadership and appeal to Senator Sanders' voters and a compliment to them. So I think he understands the need to reach out to Senator Sanders and his supporters as part of this. I also think, though, David, uh, people were watching Sunday night, and it was the first time they really saw a debate where Joe Biden was our putative nominee. we had been a very different place the last time they debated before uh, South Carolina. And I think he wanted to reassure Democrats that they were nominating someone who could take punches and throw punches, who they could feel confident sending into battle against Donald Trump. And I think they saw that. They saw someone who was very capable on the debate stage in a one-on-one debate in terms of defending himself and delivering a few shots, too. Now, those shots weren't mean. They weren't personal. They were about Senator Sanders' record. They were only delivered in response to Senator Sanders saying something about Vice President Biden's record. So I think we were trying to cast a balance between the kind of going big strategy you're talking about, but also... Uh, letting people know that if they pick Joe, Democrats know if they pick Joe Biden, they're getting someone who can go toe-to-toe with Donald Trump, defend himself, and and give as good as he gets.
1: I'll tell you that the first 40 minutes of that debate were the best 40 minutes that Biden has had in 11 debates because he was speaking comfortably and authoritatively about dealing with the crisis. And uh, I thought he landed that very well. Do you, uh, what are the odds that there are actually going to be presidential debates In the fall amid all of this and given trump's statements already that he may not he may not feel the desire to do you think his he will be in a political position where he'll have to debate
2: look uh ax i lived through this in 2016 as an advisor to secretary clinton everyone said trump wouldn't debate Uh, i always believed he would donald trump cannot say no to an audience of 100 million people his ego is just too big whether he's five points ahead or five points behind he is not going to refuse that kind of audience. And what's more, the first time someone says, are you chicken to debate Joe Biden, uh, Donald Trump will say, tell me when and where. I mean, I just think it's it's just the kind of thing he cannot resist, no matter what the political construct looks like. And there's no evidence that Donald Trump has ever uh, not chosen uh, maximum exposure, maximum audience, whether it's in his interest or not. So I absolutely believe he will debate Joe Biden in the fall. Uh, you know how many, where, when, who knows, but I think there will be debates this fall.
1: And here's what I know. If there are debates this fall, you're going to be really busy. <laughs> and uh, I hope and get, so. Getting ready for those. Ron Klain, always great to be with you, man. And uh, thank you, especially at this moment. Thank you so much. Well, thanks for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of The Axe Files is Emily Stanitz. The show is also produced by Miriam Annenberg, Samantha Neal, and Allison Siegel. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Courtney Coop, Megan Marcus, and Ashley Lusk. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu.